Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Christy and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Tuesday, September 11th. Today we are reading from the big book and we are on page 24, second, our first full paragraph down. Today's readers are Deb W., Marsha, Eddie, and Paula. The reference number for Monday is 2985. The OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Cody to read the 12 steps. Hi, this is Hoodie, compulsive overeater. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to other compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you for letting me be of service. Thank you. Thank you, Hoodie. I will now ask Rosanna to read the 12 traditions. Good morning. Rosanna here, Grateful Compulsive Overeater. The 12 traditions of, our, of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, 
a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group would never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from my primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you. Thank you, Rosanna. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speaker should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book. We're on page 24. We're in the first full paragraph in italics. I will ask Deb W. to begin reading. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Deb. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Michigan. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscured, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Um, Well, I'm going to stop there, and that is so true. I can totally identify with this this morning and I just remember in my eating career <clears throat> having my little short bouts of um, putting the food down and um, and yet um, I always went back to the food. I was without defense against the first bite 
um, it didn't matter what it was. It could be one element of something um, because my issue is sugar, fat, and flour um, mainly. And if I picked up one of those items, it didn't matter if it was sugar again that I picked up. It could have been, you know, um, pure fat or whatever. It didn't matter. It was it was triggering my disease. So the point of the matter is the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. I've lost the power and the choice of eating. I have I had to identify what those were, and I had to come. I had to concede in my innermost being that. No matter what, <laughs> I cannot pick up one of these items um, in whatever form, whatever combination. Um, it didn't matter because it would always send me back to the races. And um, with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? Hi, this is Kim. Kim, go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. For reasons yet of fewer, we have lost the power of choice in drink. You know, I always thought that meant that why can't I stop at the sixth donut? If I can just stop at that sixth donut, everything would be okay. But what, I have, what we're being taught here in the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, and now there's a solution is the power of choice, my true powerlessness, is before that first donut. It's before that first drink. I've seen the evidence. We've talked about the evidence of our obesity, of the, the, uh, the four horsemen in the morning. So why am I taking that first bite? That's where the true powerlessness is, and that's why this is the squiggly writing. It's so, so important. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness that with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. I couldn't bring it into my consciousness from breakfast. I would binge at breakfast and by 2 o'clock in the afternoon I would forget what humiliation it was. You know, I remember working at a convenience store and I leaned down to get a customer some um, cigarettes and my pants split. I was gaining weight so fast and I was just popping out of my... my uh, my pants. Did that stop me? No, that night I binged. You know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get the correlation. I was so powerless that I didn't understand that the power of choice of the first drink is what was so dangerous. And that was totally in my mind. That was totally in my mind. And the only thing that was going to change my mind was a psychic change. And that is what we're going to be taught in this book. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? Good morning, it's Leah. This is Catherine. Okay, Leah, Janice, and Catherine in that order. Go ahead, Leah. Thanks so much. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Christy. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. You'll notice uh, that this paragraph is in italics. That means they really want us to take notice. This is very, very important. Uh, What the big book is doing is really, uh, you know, trying to smash... Uh, over the head, this idea of the mental obsession. It says we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Um, You recall that uh, step two says 
came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That implies that um, I'm lacking sanity in this area. Because even after all the damage that compulsive overeating has done, even after all the illness and the consequences, even after all that, my pain has no memory. There's no memory of that. You know, I, I uh, eliminate binge foods, and then comes a time, you know, comes a day when we want to seek the ease and comfort of those substances. You know, so the big problem with the obsession of the mind is that it keeps me from seeing the truth, seeing things the way they are. Instead of the truth, I believe a lie. I believe a lie. And that lie is that this time I can handle it. This time it's going to be different. So we take that first bite based on that lie, and then the allergy of the body takes over, and then we end up binging our brains out. So our real problem is not our body, which has the allergy of the body, which ensures we can't eat those foods. But in our mind, that ensures left to my own resources, I'm going to try those foods again. You know, allergy of the body, that phenomenon of craving, that is a bad problem. That's a bad problem that once we start eating certain foods, we get an insatiable appetite for more. That was a bad problem of mine. Because when you love to eat the way I love to eat, and you cannot control the amount you eat once you start, that's a bad problem. But what the big book is telling me here is that I've got another problem, and it's a lot worse than the allergy of the body. The big book is telling me here that it's my main problem. I've got a mental problem. I've got a problem with my mind. Because when I've said I've had enough, when I said I'm not going to dig my fists into the cellophane bag and the bakery boxes anymore, I'm through, that's it, that's the end of compulsive overeating, I'm done, I'm going to be happy now, all of a sudden I change my mind. And having that first bite, that first compulsive bite, seems like the best idea I've had in a long time. And I take that bite, and I'm in all the pain and misery all over again. That is my problem. I'm without defense against the first bite, the first drink. So what the big book is telling me here is that it's not going to be my inner strength or my will or my determination or any human creation. None of those is going to be enough. I need the help of a higher power. Lack of power was my dilemma. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Janice, go ahead. Thank you, Christy. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Janice. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. Yes, indeed. It's a fact. It's a fact for most alcoholics. You know, that at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into that state. You know, we talked about that, the state where the mental state, where we have the desire to stop, but it's of absolutely no avail. Absolutely no avail. So I know that what is true, what the AAs like to say, one drink, one drunk. One drink, one drunk. You know, that is my problem. That is my problem. I am without defense against the first drink. You know, at that point... And I was one of those compulsive overeaters that at that point I passed from habit to, obs- to obsession. From habit to obsession. And once I passed from habit to obsession, there was no going back. There was a lack of control. There was a lack of control evident 
every time I picked up. A lack of control. Despite obvious harm to myself, that lack of control continued again and again and again. You know, I found myself beyond human aid, my aid or anyone else's. I don't know about you, but there were times when I begged people to help me. Said, you've got to help me. You've got to help me. I, I can't do this anymore. But no one could help me. Not my husband, not my kids, not my friends, not my doctor, not my therapist. No one seemed to be able to help me once I'd passed into this stage. Because, as has been so brilliantly talked about here, it is the best idea I've had in a long time to pick up. Despite obvious harm to myself, despite the many times it's happened, it became apparent over and over again that I had lost that power of choice, that my willpower was practically non-existent, that nobody tries. I wrote it out, like trying to remind myself. You know, I have journals filled with pain and misery and despair. I came across those just, I, I came across one of those just the other day. You know, a week or a month ago, that, that didn't stop me. A day ago, that didn't stop me. But I had to know, and the big book teaches me, putting this in italics, I had to know and believe that I was without defense against that first drink. But once I got to that place where I knew this, in my heart of hearts, that this was me and this was what was wrong with me, then there was going to be a way out. And it's there for all of us. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Janice. Catherine, go ahead. Yeah, this is Catherine, a recovery compulsive overeater. And in studying the big book, we're told that anything in italics is, is important. You should, uh, in my book, it's not only in italics, it's highlighted, it's underlined. I have notes in the sidebars. And um, the fact is that most alcoholics, for, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. And that last sentence says that we are without defense against that first drink. And that they, they say that the first drink has the last say. And in, in my reference page, I have on page five, when we're in Bill's story, we read about Bill's battle and, and what he went through. And on page five, it said, before then I had written a lot of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so I did. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. And we need to be reminded about this over and over again. We are compulsive overeaters, that um, we have a disease, and that first bite has the last say. And just to surrender, acceptance of surrender, and uh, studying the steps. On that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. I'm Christy, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And, um, you know, I, I too made a career out of eating. You know, I poured my heart and soul. I poured my heart and soul into eating, into eating. 
It was a vocation for me. You know, I wasn't pouring my heart and soul into anything else, not relationships with other people, not a real career, you know, not education, not gardening, you know, not anything, no hobbies, no interests, no nothing. It was food. It was food. It was food. It was food. You know, all of my time and energy, heart and soul were poured into eating, either eating, actively eating, or trying not to eat. And, um, you know, it, you know, in that respect, I was a workaholic, you know, that's my career. I'm a workaholic. I was always on, I was always on, I was always eating. The only thing that stopped me, the only thing that stopped me was the physical limitation of my stomach. You know, and that could also be, you know, after breakfast, I am not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. I am so full. Why did I do that? I'm sick. I can't stand it. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. And sure enough, sure enough, just a short time later, Christy's body starts processing the food and there's space again. There's space again. I don't feel uncomfortable. Not as uncomfortable. I mean, forget that I want to crawl out of my skin. Not as uncomfortable as I was before. Not uncomfortable, uncomfortably full anyways. So there I would be, eating again. And I would also wonder, you know, why can't I stop at the sixth donut? Why can't I, why can't I stop at that, that last bite? You know, after I've started eating something, after I've started eating something, I wanted to stop before I got too full. I did not realize that my problem was taking the first bite of something, the first bite of something that for me would trigger that obsession after which I had absolutely no control absolutely no control. I had no, I had no choice. My choice was taken away. My choice was taken away by picking up that first bite. I did not realize that. I did not realize that until I stuck my head in the big book instead of sticking my head in a bag or a vat or a trough of food. I had no idea that I had to just put that food down and dig into the steps. Don't dig into the bottom of the bag, Christy, looking for abstinence there. It's not there. It is not there. Put the food down. Just stop eating compulsively, and we will teach you how to stay stopped. We will teach you how to stay stopped by making the big book come to life, by taking care of the things that caused you to eat in the first place. But first, we'll put down the food to take care of the physical aspect of your disease. Then we'll take care of the greater aspect of your disease, which is the mental obsession. The mental obsession that had me by the throat. That had me imprisoned. Imprisoned for decades. For decades. And I never, ever, ever thought it would be possible I never thought it would be possible to be able to put the food down and not go back to it again and again and again. And it is possible. I want you to know that if it can happen for someone like me, it can happen for anybody. It can happen for anybody. And with that, I'll pass. Is there anyone else who would like to share on what was read? Let's move on then to the next paragraph. Marsha, will you please read? Hi, this is Marcia. I'm a compulsive overreader, recovered today, thank God. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea 
that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. I will stop there. Um, the almost certain consequences. Well, uh, for me, uh, there were most certain consequences, but my mental obsession dismissed them. Um, that obsession dismissed the, the pain, the disgust, the self-loathing, that near 300-pound number on the scale, the clothes that were getting smaller, that real, that unhappiness, that, that, that wretchedness. Uh, it all just became white noise in the background, and, and my obsession just kind of just kind of grabbed the wheel and, and kind of just drove over whatever logic, whatever reason, whatever sense um, that I would show that, you know, if there was, as it says, a hot stove, putting my hand on a hot stove is going to burn me. So why do I keep putting my hand on a hot stove? I'm insane uh, when I do this. I, I know this doesn't work, but it doesn't matter. It, it's this point when I'm using it says in here that the, if these thoughts occur, and for me, they did every single time, but they were hazy and readily supplanted with that old threadbare idea that this time, this time is going to be different. This time, this time I'm only going to have one. I'm only going to have half. I'm only going to have half, but then I'm going to go exercise afterwards. It's frozen. It doesn't matter. It, it, it's raw. It doesn't matter. It's burnt. It doesn't matter. It, it, it's insanity. It's and that is the greater aspect of that disease. That is this disease. It is the most important thing that this whole area of the, the big book is trying to, to, to explain is that, yes, we're all very intelligent people. We know that, that, you know, one causes the other. But for this particular situation, we have no defense against that first bite. And we better learn it, because if, if we don't, then this is all for naught. And I have to remember every single day, and thank God I'm recovered to the point where, where this is just, this is almost, almost normal for me to be free of this. And I thank God. I mean, every once in a while, there are, you know, I'm faced with this at work all the time, but... I, I have my higher power with me, I have my sponsor, and I have worked the steps and the obsession that I used to have looking and gazing upon all the stuff that people bring into work doesn't even faze me anymore. And that's a miracle. That is an absolute miracle um, that I don't even have to put myself in a situation where I have to defend myself against that first fight. My higher power has removed that from me. He has given me a daily reprieve, and for that, I am very grateful. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Marsha. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? This is Catherine. Catherine, go ahead. Thank you. This is Catherine, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. And for me, the big book comes alive in this chapter and the chapters following. Um, there again, we're, we're told about the, uh, the almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. And we're, later on, we're told that most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different. This is on page 30 and more about alcoholism. The idea that somehow, someday, 
He will control and enjoy his drinking. It's a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And so, compulsive overeater. The, pers- the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity and death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently may be, has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers. All of us felt that at times we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse. Never better. On that, I pass. Thank you, Catherine. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? This is Janice. This is Janice. Janice, go ahead, and then Paula. Thank you, Christy. Thank you. I love this paragraph because it says to me that this is my thinking. This is my thinking. And what are they telling me here? You know, the almost certain consequences that always happened to me, that always happened to this compulsive overeater, the certain consequences that once I picked up, once I took that first bite, I had no prediction. I could not predict how much or when I would stop, how much I would eat or when I would stop. But it says that those consequences do not crowd into the mind to deter us. You know, they don't crowd into my mind. And why is that? Because my mind was already crowded with the thoughts of the food. My mind was already crowded with those thoughts that this time it would be different. The all threadbare idea. Worn out though that idea was. Threadbare, they call it. That old idea that this time I could handle myself like other people. You know, that old threadbare idea wouldn't hold water anymore, that old threadbare idea. But it was all I had, and I kept clinging to that old threadbare idea and finding myself once again in that same place. There was a complete failure of the kind of defense of putting your hand on a hot stove. You know, and I've been there. I've been there where I burned myself, and I avoided trying to do that again, let me tell you. Here, the pain was just as great. The pain was just as great every time. Every time, waking up to those four horsemen, saying, how did I get here again? Again. There's nothing worse than that feeling. But the big book is making it very clear here. And the experience of those 100 recovered alcoholics, very clear here what I'm up against what I'm up against, who I am and what I'm up against. Thank you, God. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Janice. Paula, go ahead. This would be Paula, Recovered Compulsive Rita. It says clearly in the first, second word, the almost certain consequences. Well, that says almost. doesn't say definite. No, no. Perhaps this time. Almost certain consequences that follow 
taking even a glass of beer. Now, they're doing this very lightly. You know, even something very small. Okay, do not crowd into the mind because, as was just said, the mind is full. It's crowded. The seed has been planted, but more than that, it's been nourished. It's been fostered. It's been fed. Until it grows, there is nothing, no more room in there to deter us. And what does to deter mean? To prevent by prohibition or danger, to discourage. Uh Uh-uh. Oh, no. Danger, danger. Uh Uh-uh. Don't hear it. And off I go. Off I go. Yet again, another time. Because maybe this time. Mm hmm. That's why it says when it takes root, this is what has to be removed, the very root of it. Thank you for allowing me to share. And with that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? This is Victoria. Victoria, go ahead. This passage is valuable to me because it makes the self-destructiveness, which is at the core of the disease, so clear to me. And that was such a source of mental anguish. To wake up each day and many, many times during the day put my hand on a hot stove. It damaged my body badly. But I think even more painful than the actual damage to my body that the disease caused was my awareness that over and over again, I was putting my hand on a hot stove. It was a literal image for me to capture the way I was living And it caused me tremendous confusion and really mental torture. I would make promises not to destroy myself today. And this passage makes that destruction so literal. Walk up to a stove, put your hand right on it, and your flush burns. That's a pretty horrific image. And to do that to oneself day after day after day was the experience of this disease. With that, I pass. Thank you, Victoria. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? It's Leah. Leah, go ahead. Thanks so much. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. You know, this reminds me, many of you know, I used to reside in in Minnesota, and uh, the temps get, you know, sub-zero degree temperatures there. And I remember the first couple years we resided there, one of my sons experimented by putting his tongue on the side of the car, uh, you know, when it was like minus 20 outside, and his tongue got fixed to the side of the car, and of course, you know, took uh, his parents to remove that, um, and it was painful, and he suffered, you know, some abrasions on his tongue because of that experiment, and my son never did that again, 
I mean, he remembered the pain of that experiment, and it was a bad experiment, and he never did it again. But suppose that darling son of mine was out there on Monday trying it again, and, and despite the pain and suffering, tried it again on a Wednesday, and uh, then on a day when he wasn't feeling great, you know, tried it again because it would make him feel better, or when he was having a great day, go out there and try it again. I mean, we would look at that child of mine as insane, lacking soundness of mind foolishness that, those are the definitions of insanity an inability to see the truth an inability to learn from experience insanity insanity now compulsive overeating those binge foods burn me over and over and over again my life was complete mayhem for about two decades it burned me just as bad as a hot stove, just as bad as that tongue experiment, but for some strange reason, left to Leia's own resources, I can't remember what those binge foods do for me. It's fascinating. I get to thinking about what it's going to do for me. And I and I can't remember the pain. You see, when I abstain from my binge foods, when I go off of them for a while, I start to feel uncomfortable. I start to feel deprived, impatient, on edge. I'm a little uh, restless. I'm a little irritable. I'm a little discontent. And those feelings, those thoughts crowd my mind. And those thoughts get so loud that at some point I've got to shut them up. And the only way I know how to shut them up is to get relief, and that is to pick up that first bite. And what the big book is telling me is that I am without defense against that first bite. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. What is that but insane? What is that but insane? Now, I will also tell you and give you a little sneak preview that after implementing these very steps that are outlined clearly in these first 164 pages, you're going to get to page 84, just like I got to page 84 through these steps. And it says, after implementing all these steps, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. See, the big book takes me from insanity which is found here on page 24, to sanity, restored to sanity on page 84, through the implementation of these steps. Is it something done through personal uh, success, through intelligence, through self-knowledge, through, through willpower, through determination? No, absolutely not. It's done because these steps take me on a spiritual journey which transforms my personality and takes me from a self-centered existence to a God-centered existence. And in that journey, the necessity for me to seek relief in the cellophane bag is removed. It's expelled. The obsession of the mind is driven out through the program of recovery, through a power greater than myself, restoring me to sanity. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph before we move on to the next one? Hi, this is Audrey. I'd like to share. Sure, Audrey, go ahead. Good morning. Hi, this is Audrey, gratefully recovered compulsive overeater in Minneapolis. When we talk about the sanity, you know, how many times over the last five years has somebody said to me, isn't it hard to do what you do? Isn't it hard to weigh and measure in restaurants? Or isn't it hard to do a 15-minute writing assignment every day? 
And I've got to tell you, this insanity that I had before this program of working the 12 steps in the big book, you know, is it is it insane to be face down in the food? Is, is it insane to be choking on food? Is it insane to be so self-absorbed and filled with self-pity that I, I couldn't even see what a beautiful day it was? Or I wasn't available to be kind to another human being. I have such a different way of living now because I realize that I'm truly powerless over everything. And in that powerlessness, there's such an incredible freedom. You know, to notice, to stop in the middle of the day and just look up and notice that the geese are all confused and to watch them get it together or to just breathe into the wind. I never would have done those things before. I never would have been able to be grateful for you know, I wasn't grateful for the color of a zonal geranium and how pink it is. And, you know, we would never expect a flower to be, you know, a chair, uh, you know, but that would be crazy. So here we are uh, with, with the possibility of a daily reprieve, even a moment's reprieve. And as my, uh, as I've learned by working the steps here is that there's always going to be another moment for me to go back and be crazy. But that first bite that is something that i if i do it it's because i'm doing it nobody's doing it to me if i take that first bite i'm saying okay let the, let the races begin let the crazy thinking begin and we are powerless over that first bite and i when i first started working the the big book i thought oh well that's no big deal well yeah it's a big deal because here it is in print, and it doesn't matter, you know, whether technology is in place. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world, who's in political office. Here it is, the big book, you know, back to the 1930s where it was after the war. Well, the war exists in the mind for so many of us. And imagine that we could be free from that in this moment to serve life, uh, to bring happiness and joy, uh, to, uh, to walk a mile with somebody in their moccasins, as they say, and to show up to be of service. And I just, I just thank God that, that this disease brought me to my knees. And I know that it's the first bite and that willingness just to say, you know, I don't know the answers to anything anymore and how great that is to be able to show up and just be happy in this moment uh, to serve. And it all comes down to what we see in the big book of you know the insanity so much of it was insane we were all insane and now we get a chance just a chance of having that life of sane and happy usefulness that is promised in the promises on page 83 84 in the big book and with that I'll pass thank you Audrey Eddie will you please read the next paragraph Good morning this is Eddie in Virginia Grateful, compulsive, overeater, recovered today. Thank you, God. <laughs> the alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way, and after the third or fourth, pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink, or what's the use anyhow? And um, I know as I look back over my long career of eating my way to insanity and back, um, that every time I ever started, it was the same thing. I just wanted to be like other people, to be able to eat casually, 
um, with the ability to stop when I had enough or um, to have um, a great time at a party, you know, enjoy the food and a drink and whatever, or geez, it was Christmas or my, it's my birthday or whatever, and say to myself, and tomorrow I will just go back to uh, getting on my diet or, you know, eating normally or whatever. And, um, you know, now that I look back, you know, after what God willing will be this week, um, Saturday will be my seventh anniversary um, of abstinence, um, that I really was dissembling there in, in, in many of it, because I knew, especially towards the end, um, exactly what I had done, you know, and um, just chose not to face the fact that I had made the decision to start again, uh, despite the fact that, and, and I could not, and, and in truth, could not recall um, in the very beginning uh, what had got me there, you know, in the first place. And so that first bite uh, would always like start me down the road, and um, you know, I'd, I'd wind up in the same place that I always did. But I, I think that if I would be truthful with myself, towards the end of uh, my eating career, um, I knew, and, and I knew that I had made that decision because the food spoke louder than anything else in my life. It spoke louder than my husband, spoke louder than my family, spoke louder than my responsibilities to other people or my job. Um, it, it, to my God, there was no God. There was food, and that's all there was. But, um, you know, I found that, um, you know, there was no there was no defense. No, no matter how hard I had worked to get where I was, there was no defense. Once that thought put itself in my mind, I had no way to dislodge that and no and no desire to dislodge that. Because, as has been said many times on this line, it was the best thought I had had in a long time. And it was the only thought I had at that point in time. And it was, um, you know, it was that uh, famous line uh, from a, I think it's a Navy admiral, you know, damn the torpedoes and, and full speed ahead. Uh, and that, that was it. That was it. There was no other way to go except forward back into the four horsemen riding right straight towards them with delight in most, in most cases because this was the best thought I had had in a long time. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Eddie. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? This is Janice. Janice, go ahead. Thank you, Christy. Thank you. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. You know, this time it will be different. This time it will be different. That was the idea firmly implanted in my head that I went to over and over and over again. This time it will be different. This time it will be different. Now, it didn't matter that I might walk into that bakery in my mind thinking, I'm only just going to buy two. And then my, mind, my mouth would say six, half a dozen. Well, I'll just get a half a dozen. And, and when those half a dozen are gone, that'll be it. That'll be it. You know, I'm just like this alcoholic. Well, I'll stop with the sixth drink. I'll stop with that half dozen. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Or the last sentence, which was the worst for me, what's the use anyhow? What's the use anyhow? Because it got to the point where the inevitable always happened. The inevitable to me was no matter how great the desire or the wish, no matter how much strength and will and determination and intelligence and self-knowledge I put towards this, 
inevitably, I would pick up again. The inevitable would happen. That was my truth then. That was my truth then. What's the use anyhow? Because it always happened that same way. And yet, even with that despair, I could not stop. Even faced with that, I could not stop. And the big book teaches so clearly the experience of those first 100 recovered alcoholics because they experienced that too. And if they experienced that too and could be transformed, then I knew it could be true for me too. And that hope kept me going as I practiced the steps as if my life depended on it because it did. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Janice. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? This is Sarah. Can I share? Sure, Sarah. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning. This is Sarah, um, Apostle Reader. Um, it says, or perhaps he doesn't think at all. You know, when I think to um, when like just getting started in, into one of those binges, um, before I before I heard this message. I didn't think at all. It was only after I heard the message that I realized just how insane I was. It's kind of like um, when I think about it, it's it's kind of like one of those diseases that happen inside of you that just you know that are um, like where all your your innards are just inflamed and are so sick and you have no idea until it's too late and it's like this cancer that's kind of running through you and you have no clue and. Until, you know, until after, you know, you, one day, like, you just, you're in pain, and you and you wake up, and you find out, like, you're such a sick, you're so sick, you're so, so sick, and, and it was just after I learned and how insidious this disease is, and how it was destroying my life, did I realize, um, you know, how defenseless I was, and then only then did i really think before i um before i stuck my hand back into that cellophane bag and and realized how much i was destroying myself i really didn't even know until until it be, until other people made me very aware that i was really so so i didn't think at all perhaps he doesn't think at all and and then once you know, and once that hand is stuck in and and after and the guilt and the shame and the remorse and and the powerlessness, then only then do you realize like I need help. I can't do this alone. I need a power greater than myself. And thank you God, thank you God for being that power. And with that I'll pass. Thank you, Sarah. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? It's Leah. Leah, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, You know, the big book is just doing its best to smash uh, our delusional mind. Because, you know, a lot of meetings, unfortunately, OA meetings, they merely focus on abstinence. And, of course, elimination of our binge foods is an absolute necessity. You can't go through the steps 
you know, while while uh, binging. <laughs> uh, you can't serve two masters. You know, if you're going to serve the master of disease, you're not going to be available. I wasn't available to to serve a new master, a higher power. It says, um, you know, uh, the alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Uh, that's That's the lie. That's the lie. And when we focus only on abstinence, we don't realize, I didn't realize that once those foods were eliminated, I was dealing with the most dangerous part of my illness. And that's the obsession of the mind. So it's a race against time because once the food is down, the obsession of the mind is at work. I mean, it is at work. It is, it is, uh, you know, it is whispering in my ear, delivering to me the option of picking up. The obsession of the mind will win out every time because it's stronger than my willpower. So even though I was abstinent, abstinence is physical. My disease is spiritual. My disease is spiritual. I have a spiritual malady. I have a gangrene of the spirit. I have a soul sickness. Eliminating binge foods does nothing to heal my mind. It, it, it relieves me of the allergy of the body. That is true. But just because the allergy of the body is not an issue at that time, that obsession of the mind, the greater aspect of my disease, is alive and well. And when they say, oh, get abstinent, you're going to feel better, that's true, I did feel better. I felt resentment better, I felt anger better, I felt guilt better, I felt remorse better, <laughs> there was, I felt fear better, yes, that is true. And I walked around restless, irritable, and discontent. I, I say it's like trying to hold your breath underwater. There's only so long I could do it until the point where I just couldn't take the pain of walking this planet without being numbed out. I couldn't take that discomfort. I, had to, I was disturbed. So many things disturbed me. It was like I'm, I'm an overfeeler. I felt everything deeply. I felt sadness deeply. I felt anger deeply. I felt, you know, remorse deeply. I couldn't live my life that way. And so came a time, came a day when I would pick up. That's why the, the uh, big book makes it clear that this is a self-imposed crisis. That brownie did not catapult itself off the counter and down my gullet. I made a decision. I make a decision to pick up. I instruct my hand to reach out to that brownie and put it down my mouth, even though I have a history of compulsive overeating, even though that has caused me tremendous pain, even though I know I'm going to finish the 9 by 13, even though I'm going to you know, go through the cupboards and the freezers finding whatever I can get my hands on, even though I'm going to leave the house and go around uh, for hours through the city from binge place to binge place while I have a loving husband home <laughs> waiting for me. Even after all that, I'm going to make a decision to pick up. That is insane. That's insane. And if I didn't, until I understood that it was the obsession of the mind that was the greater aspect of my disease, I didn't understand the necessity and the urgency for these steps. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand it was a race against time. That only God could save me from me. Only God could save me from me. 
Because a sick mind cannot heal a sick mind. Only he who created it can do that. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. And thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Paula, will you please read a vision for you? This is Paula, Recovered Compulsive Ovida. A book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. Thank you, Paula. I will ask everyone to press star 1 to unmute so we can say the service.